Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone. Well, it's good to be in the house of God. I'd like to say a welcome to all the visitors and home folks as well. We have a goodly number here. Glad to see Michael's here again from Haiti. And uh, of course Eugene's from South Dakota and we have some folks from Texas here. Welcome. And uh, is it Oklahoma? Oh, we've got a good representation here. Lord bless you all. We've gathered this morning in the name of the Lord, and we read in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, refers to him as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we don't use the word potentate a lot. But that word is representative of the ultimate power. And my subject this morning is on the power of God. I'm continuing, I think this would be number two in a series, which may not be necessarily all sequential, but... I do feel led to speak about the attributes of God, and this is one of his maybe most prominent ones. He is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. His power, we'd like to speak about this morning, uh, let's, uh, I'd like for you to follow along in the scriptures here. Let's turn to Job chapter 26, verse 14. This, uh, verse 14, I'll read that and then we'll make some reference to what comes before. It says, Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now that's a bit of a figure of speech there, the thunder, and if you... Uh, Recall in the scriptures a number of times it uh, speaks about God thundering. And in the Revelation where John saw these visions of heaven, he heard thunders from heaven. It is a 
figure of speech or a representation of the mighty power of God, referring to the thunder, and it says, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Well, we can't really understand the depth and the breadth and the height of his power, but it is because it is beyond our comprehension of understanding. Nevertheless, we do well to consider as best we can the power of God. Now there are a number of terms used in the scripture in reference to God. God refers to himself as the Almighty. And that word encompasses all might. All might belongs to God. He is the Almighty, the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. In the account in Genesis chapter 18 where God came and made a promise to Sarah and Abraham that they would have a son, God, after Sarah laughed within herself, God asked this question. Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Good question. Well, we know the answer, as it's uh, mentioned to us over and over in Scripture. Is that no, there is nothing too hard for God. And that was clearly implied in the answer. But let's look in the New Testament in Romans chapter 4. We have then Abraham's response. In Romans chapter 4, verse 19 through 21. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. He was able also to perform. That is rooted in God's power. If the Lord wills something, who can stay his hand? None. He is the blessed and only potentate. And Abraham grasped a hold of that. And it is actually the foundation of our faith in the promises of God that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. In other words, when God makes a promise... It's not based on any weakness. There is no weakness there. He is able to fulfill everything that he said. And in that confidence, we have faith. Faith to lay hold of the promises of God. Now, if one of us makes a promise to another, 
We may, on the basis of our friendship and everything, we may trust what is said, but we also recognize, uh, first of all, if the promise seems too large to have a reasonable expectation of fulfillment, then then we have lots of doubts. And secondly, we also realize that there are limitations to what we can fulfill even with the best of intentions. There can be obstacles and hindrances and and on and on we go. But with God, that is not so. His arm is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear isn't heavy that he can't hear. Is anything too hard for God? No. He has all power. He has everything that is needed to fulfill his promise. I'd like for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. We'll read in verse uh, 16, Jeremiah 32, 16. Now when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power, and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers unto the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And he continues on. Let's skip down to verse 26. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? That's a question we should ask ourselves from time to time. Is there anything too hard for God? No. There's nothing too hard for God. Now, in spite of this um, incomparable power, there are many who doubt. Uh, They doubt perhaps even the existence of God. They may mock at the idea that God can do anything. Uh, I recall... Quite a number of years ago, we were up in Iowa City doing uh, street evangelism, preaching and teaching, and I recall on one occasion, several young ladies there that were mocking God, and I remember one of them asking in a bit of a mocking way, um, when speaking about the power of God, she asked the question, so I have a question for you. Can God make a rock so big that even he himself cannot move it? Oh, 
you know, and then you uh, kind of scratch your head. Well, I don't recall really what my answer was or my reply. Um, But for some reason, that question stuck in my mind. I've come across it since in writings and others and commenting about the greatness of God and so on. But they seem to have the attitude that this is an elementary question meant to stump you, that you can't, you know, you can't answer because uh, it, it kind of contradicts itself. Well, there is such a thing as a contradiction of terms or of, uh, or it's like this. Can a, can a fountain yield both sweet water and bitter? The answer is no. Those are mutually exclusive. And that's simply a reality. There are certain things that are mutually exclusive. Um, The scripture is very clear that God cannot lie. So there are things that God cannot do because they are contrary to his nature. So that is not an, an evidence of weakness or lack of power. It's that he simply cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. Um, He is a God of life. He has power. And so these these terms um, they are somewhat mutually contradictory and therefore cannot. There's You cannot have something exist and not exist at the same moment. It just can't be. Now back to the question about the rock. So big that God couldn't move it. Back in our first text there in Job chapter 26, a few verses before, um, It was said that God hangs the earth upon nothing. Isn't that amazing? He hangs the earth upon nothing. So if we were to logically go through this question and say, can God make a rock so big that he himself couldn't move it? Well, then we would have to ask, first of all, so how big is the biggest rock that God made? And then after thinking a bit, we have to realize that, well, we don't know. We don't know if we've even ever seen the biggest rock that God made. Well, we, and as a matter of fact, we have no measurement to even get us to where the biggest rock is or what its size is or its dimensions. So isn't it rather ridiculous to think that we could question God's abilities or his powers. In fact, well, let's turn to uh, um, Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 12, 
Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Not only can he do that, he can measure the hills, the dust of the earth, the very entirety of the earth. He can weigh it in a scale and tell you how much it weighs and what its extent, but Furthermore, he didn't even need pillars to set it on. He just hung it on nothing. And there it is. Verse 13, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles is a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. And then dropping down to verse 21. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Verse 25, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be? Will saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things. That bringeth out their host by number, he calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Not one faileth. So the heavens, the very heavens are a demonstration of the power, the unlimited power of God. And we as mortals cannot even fathom the depths of it and the length and the breadth of it. It's beyond comprehension. And yet, if we try to stretch our minds a bit and understand that even the heavens of heavens cannot contain God. God is not somewhere in the universe. The universe is somewhere in God. If he wanted to make another universe, his power is not limited. Now some... Perhaps atheists, I don't know if any Christians struggle with the idea or question whether there be other worlds and other aliens somewhere in space or in this universe. And there is, in this world, there's many searching for answers. Well, it seems clear from the scripture that God created the earth to be inhabited and the heavens are meant to be a demonstration of his power and not um, to be populated with other worlds and other peoples. It was this earth that was formed first and then the stars and the sun and the moon and so on. Now it's not that God couldn't have other worlds. But there is not a hint in scripture and even a lot of contrary evidence that there is no other worlds out there. 
Uh, it is this world that God created and placed man upon it and intended for the rest of the creation, even the heavens and the, and the stars, to be a demonstration of his boundless power. And so he says, lift up your eyes on high. To whom will you liken me, or shall I be equal? There is no equal. He is called the Almighty. Now, as I mentioned before, there's, there are certain things that God cannot do because of his nature. For example, he cannot lie. That's very clear in Scripture. But we also have to acknowledge that there are many things that God could do but has chosen not to. For example, he has given to us, to mankind, the power to choose. We have a freedom of the will. We can choose to do this or to not do this. And to say that if we choose not to do this, it's not because we would not have the power to do it, but we have, uh, because of our will, we have chosen not to. Well, the same is true of God, even to a greater extent than our freedom of will. It's not that God cannot do some things, it's there are some things he chooses not to do. And... Who are we to be his counselor and say that it should be thus or so? Now how that works out in real life, we have the example in Daniel of the three men that did not bow to the king. And let's turn to the book of Daniel because we're going to look at several other examples from that book. Let's start in chapter 3. In the story of the fiery furnace, and I think you're mostly familiar with this story of how the king set up this great image and required that all should bow down and worship this golden image. The three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow. And in verse 14, they're brought before the king. Okay? This man has power. This man has a lot of power. He has the power to kill and to keep alive to a certain extent, as we shall see here. But he asks the question, verse 14, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now he knew the answer, of course, that was why they were there, but he wanted an ambition. But he offered to them that if they... Um, If they would, he would give them a second chance. 
And if not, there's this threat, of course, that uh, they were, would be uh, cast into the burning fire furnace. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of stating the obvious. I mean, he knew well that they, it wasn't by accident that they'd refused to bow. And they knew that. He knew that. But he's offering them a second chance just to make it crystal clear here that of the consequences. And then he ends by saying, Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Just like mocking that they would think to serve a God that would save them out of his hand. And they answered in verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And that word careful there in this context would mean we are not alarmed or concerned. We're not, we're not afraid. We're not, we're not afraid or ashamed to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, they were acknowledging here in this statement, as I would understand it, they are acknowledging the unlimited power of God. And they are clearly stating that God's power supersedes that of the king. But they said, uh, if not, verse 18, if God would choose not to deliver us, and in that statement I understand them to be acknowledging that they are not God's counselors. They are not telling God how things must be done. And acknowledging that God has the right to let it come to pass as he wills. But nevertheless, we will not bow down to your God. And of course, God delivered them. And in verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that, ten, that can deliver after this sort. And then he promoted them. Now, truly an example of the unlimited power of God to intervene in the affairs of men and to cause something to come to pass that had never been seen before. Or at least not of this, of this sort, where men cast into the fire 
that slays other men who even get close and then they come out of the fire with no sign of hurt or even the smell of smoke. Well, there's more examples through the book of Daniel. I'd like to note several of them. And and maybe as a preface, I'll just say that we are living in a time when there's a lot of turmoil. And in the United States, there is right now a contest of sorts as to who shall be the leader of this nation. And you know the the statements that are made many times about the leader of America being the most powerful man in the world. Uh, They all sometimes refer to him as the leader of the free world, as the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And so the man at the head of that is the greatest leader in the world. And so on and so on. Well, whether that actually is true... um, There could be debate about that because there are other nations. But I think you understand that even this, what many would say is the greatest position on earth, is now in contest. And there's controversy as to who who should lead this. And we might even have preferences as to how we hope this whole thing works out. But let's remember, as God's people, we have an unshakable confidence that regardless of how it goes, there is one who rules above all. And that's because of his power. Now his power is truly veiled in many ways. It is not yet recognized in its fullness. Uh, because our eyes are dimmed with our mortality. But by faith we have confidence that this God, with whom nothing is too hard, the one who knows all the affairs of men, the one who is able to set up and put down whom he will. And so let's look here in Daniel. Chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar. Now this Nebuchadnezzar, in one of the visions, remember he was this, uh, there was this image that he saw in in his dreams. And this great image had a head of gold, and then a chest of silver, and so on. The gold at the top, the most precious of the metals, and it seems like it was diminishing in its value as it went down through the form of this statue. But when it was interpreted to him by Daniel, revealed by the God of heaven, it was said of Nebuchadnezzar, Thou art this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar's power was quite impressive. But here, chapter 4 in Nebuchadnezzar, the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. 
How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Well, I won't go into all the details, but I'll just state it briefly that he had this vision of this great tree that was spread and all the fowls of the air would come and it was, it was a great and mighty tree. And then it was, uh, and then an angel came and cut down the tree and it lost its strength and power. Well, that was interpreted to him then as a sign that he himself would be cut down. Well, verse 28, chapter 4. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom? by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And skipping on, well, no, let's read that, the rest of that. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, And seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from men. And he did eat grass as oxen. So what God had said, he was able to fulfill. He was able to cut down Nebuchadnezzar in a moment. He says, Until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. So men have their ambitions. They have their places and positions of power. They have the ability to rule at the will of the Almighty. Verse 34, And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor, and my brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. An amazing demonstration of the power of God. And it didn't stop there. These are heathen kings who are made to know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. Let's go on to uh, chapter 5. Here we have another king, Belshazzar. And he made a feast for thousands. And they were having this great feast and making... um, making sport, and he called for the vessels from the temple that had been taken to Babylon, and they were desecrating the holy uh, vessels that had been sanctified for the temple use. And let's read what was said to him then after he saw this handwriting on the wall. In verse 18, this is Daniel speaking. O thou king, the most high, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose, all, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. So this heathen king was reproved for not considering what had happened to his father Nebuchadnezzar. And it did not cause him to humble his heart But rather he hardened it and lifted it up against the Lord of heaven. And Daniel tells him, it's this God in whose hand your breath is. And you haven't glorified him. And of course he was weighed in the balance and found wanting. And in verse 30 it says, In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. 
Now there was a difference here between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in that Nebuchadnezzar, when he was put down and was out of his mind for seven years, then God brought him back and restored the kingdom to him and the greatness and the excellency of his majesty. But for Belshazzar it was not so. He was slain that night and the kingdom was given to another. Is anything too hard for God? Nothing. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that if God says something, who is going to stay his hand? Or say to him, you know, question him or challenge him in any way. What are you going to do? Or why are you doing this? Well, let's uh, go several chapters farther. Chapter 7. We're skipping over chapter 6, which has the account of Daniel and the lion's den, where again God was able to deliver him. We're going to chapter 7. Here we have prophecy of what is yet to come. This is not talking about kingdom's past. This is talking about kingdom's future. Verse 8, chapter 7, verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit. Who is the Ancient of Days? Again, the Ancient of Days is a figure of speech referring to time before all time. No, no limits. The Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body and the visions of my head troubled me. 
Now, if the vision thereof troubled him, what will the reality be? There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages shall serve him. Now this very portion of scripture was quoted by Jesus, or a portion thereof, when he was on trial, just uh, before his crucifixion, he was before the Sanhedrin, and they asked him, they demanded to know of him, are you, you have claimed to be the son of God? Are you the Son of God? And he, he replied, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven. And there he stopped. You shall see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven. Well, I believe they knew very well what that meant. And, oh, they said, that's blasphemy, away with him. And then they brought him before Pilate. And Pilate asked him several questions, and are you, are you a king? And he said, yes, I am a king. And at one point then, there was some back and forth, and, and Pilate came before Jesus again, after he had heard the claim that they were saying that he says he's the king of the Jews. And he came before Jesus and he demanded to know from whence he was. Now think of the significance of that question. Because I believe it was dawning on Pilate somehow that this man is not like any other. And he was afraid. Jesus didn't answer him. He just kept silence. And then Pilate demanded and he, he threatened him and said, Don't you realize that I have the power to kill you? And Jesus just answered and said, You have no power except to be given you from above. There is a blessed and only potentate. And it says that Pilate was afraid. He was afraid. Why? Well, I think he was beginning, it was sort of dawning on him that there is a higher power. I'm not sure if he quite was willing to accept it or believe it, but he was certainly afraid because he was confronted with the reality that there is a higher power and he was afraid that he was standing before this higher power or that it was right there and I don't think he knew what to do with it. So this, this was Jesus, come in the flesh, the blessed and only potentate. The one who had power in himself to lay down his life and to take it again. 
No human has that power. It is only God who has the power to lay down and take it again. Well, in closing, I would just like to remind us of some of these portions I read here about the coming of the Lord. Daniel saw it here in this vision. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Well, the New Testament reaffirms that he will be coming in the clouds of heaven. And Jesus' own words were that he would be coming with power and glory. Now we have, we as humans are always impressed by power. Even a little bit of power is impressive. And more power is more impressive than when we have tremendous power. It's awesome. But we haven't seen anything yet in terms of power. And when Jesus says that he will be coming with power and great glory, he said he would be coming in the majesty and the power of his Father. And so, when we have the term, the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling. It is then that we will, as he says there, we shall know him as we are known, for we shall see him as he is. At that time when our mortality is, is put off, and we take on immortality, and we can see him as he is. He already is that grand and, you know, beyond all comprehension, glorious in power, but in our mortality we cannot see its extent. But when he comes, and we are transformed, he is going to be coming in power, great power, tremendous power, and it will be evident that his kingdom rules over all. And we shall then see his power for what it really is. It will simply be an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain, as it were, for us to see what it really is. And today, we have confidence in that power, knowing that what God has promised, he is able to fulfill. And when God says that it is thus or so, no one is going to stay his hand or to question what he does. Well, may we be found faithful and looking for that unveiling of his power. May God bless.